Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130-AJ-66, The Family is Tristy. Seventh Commandment, 1 Kings 1 Kings 21, verses 1-14.
Now, it is, of course, true that many of these are actually divorces that the man has demanded, and with a kind of facade asks the woman to get it, that he is pushing for it. But in spite of this, studies do indicate that in divorces, the initiative is usually on the part of the women. Second, another interesting item with respect to divorces is that the better the income, the less likely a divorce. In the early 1950s, not too long after World War II, a very extensive study was made of who got a divorce. And the study showed that those earning less than 3000 which at that time was not too bad an income, were two to four times as likely to be divorced as men earning over 4000 The lower the income, the more likely the divorce. This, of course, runs contrary to popular opinion because the divorce cases that do hit the papers are prominent people, well-to-do figures. Actually, the overwhelming percentage of divorces then and today will be found among people with a lower income. Then third, the overwhelming percentage of desertions by men are by men of a very low income who desert their families and go off under another name into another community. Now these three items, which as I stated earlier, are generally overlooked, are very, very telling facts. They indicate that very clearly a major restraint on divorce is the possession of property. It is not because men are less sinful than women that most divorces are not initiated by men. It is because the man having worked for the property is less anxious to see it broken up. The men desert when they do not have property. Women are similarly less likely to leave a marriage if the inducement of property and income is strong enough. In other words, property is a, an important restraint on divorce and a major stabilizing force in society. Now, while these facts are not popularly known, they are very, very well known to sociologists and to political theorists. Thus, when the state begins to dispossess the family of property and to replace the fa uh, family as the custodian of property, the marriage tie is harmed. As socialism increases, in other words, the stability of marriage decreases. 
similarly, as the state enters into the other great realm of family authority, the control of children, similarly, the stability of marriage decreases. Because socially, the two great areas of the family's authority and function are on the one hand children, on the other property. The family is the custodian of children and property. Its role with respect to children includes education and religion. Thus, when the family is functioning properly and is strong and the state has not entered into its area, the state is not in the business of education. This is a function of the family. Similarly, the family gives the child the basic religious education, not the state school. Thus, children and property are the two great social functions of the family, and today's socialism claims both areas. As a result, the family is weakened. The family, as I indicated, has these two social functions. This means, therefore, the family is a working body, a working entity. When the family is struck by the forces of socialism, the family is no longer seen as a working body, a working partnership. Then romance is seen as the function of marriage, to fulfill the romantic urge in man. And so a great deal is said about romance and love and marital bliss and all this nonsense. And if you lose that feeling of bliss, then you break up the marriage. The state, having struck at the function of the family, replaces it with an emotional fulfillment. And an emotional fulfillment, if not felt, means the dissolution of the marriage. Because the Bible very clearly sees property and children as the social functions of the family, it sees marriage with tenderness, but not romantically. The Bible describes marriage very realistically. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.14 described it as a yoke, Y-O-K-E, a yoke. Now, a yoke perhaps has to be explained in this day when most people are city-born, but a yoke is a tie which binds two creatures together, two oxen or two horses or two mules, as they pull a burden to enable them to pull it together. The Bible speaks of marriage as a yoke. Husband and wife are yoked together in order to pull a common burden. So it does involve a burden. 
Again, St. Paul describes it as trouble in the flesh in 1 Corinthians 7.28, or as Moffat renders it as outward trouble. Marriage, in other words, means assuming certain responsibilities and having a life of continuing trouble because responsibilities always bring with them problems, troubles. Is it any wonder that marriages are in trouble today when people brought up on the romantic conception of marriage find as they marry that there are burdens attached to it and troubles attached to it and somehow this isn't what marriage is supposed to be, they say. But in terms of the biblical perspective, the yoke and the troubles are important. It's a partnership in dealing with the burdens and the trouble. And the joy comes in doing this together, in meeting the responsibilities as a working partnership in the service of God, exercising dominion in an appointed sphere. Proverbs over and over again reveals this perspective. Incidentally, it is significant that Proverbs has no reference whatsoever to polygamy, indicating that this was a rarity in Israel. The normal, everyday marriage of man was monogamous. Proverbs speaks of the duties of husband and wife together, to be wise stewards, of that which is theirs, the wealth, the property which is theirs, of their duty to instruct their children in God's law and in family discipline. And the partnership is spoken of as either a joy or a disaster. For example, Proverbs 14.1 says, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hand. In other words, on the wife depends much of the family's stability, on her ability to be a wise burden bearer, and to bring together the authority of the father and the obedience of the children. As a result, in Proverbs 18.22 we read, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the law. Again in Proverbs 19.14 we read, Houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. Thus the inheritance we receive from our parents is houses and riches, but the inheritance from God is a prudent wife. Proverbs 12.4 declares, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. A crown to her husband, a virtuous woman. That is, he is like a king. His authority and his ability to exercise dominion is crowned. Whereas she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. Now, as we have seen, this partnership of man and wife is 
as custodians of property as well as custodians of children. The family is the God-given, God-appointed custodian of these things. We saw earlier the significance of the dowry, and it is well to restate it briefly in this connection. The dowry was to begin the family in terms of property because property is so basic to the life of the family. And so the dowry was required. It was not, as anthropologists say, a bride purchase because it was handed in biblical law by the bridegroom to the wife. It was a bride gift, a bridal gift. It was the main wedding gift. And marriage in biblical times was only legal with the dowry. We don't very often hear of it today, but the dowry was for untold centuries an institution of English and American law. Not too many decades ago, the law was changed in this respect so that the dowry, in terms of law today, of the wife, is community property. And this was originally spoken of as her dower, and I'm sure in many states, the community property provisions of the law probably still read that this is the wife's dower. This is in terms of biblical law, except that the modern dower in law has this weakness. Responsibility is not required before marriage. So if the man has no property, then there is really no dowry for the widow. But in terms of biblical law, he had to prove his sense of responsibility and accumulate some wealth before he could marry. The biblical family can be compared to a corporation. There are differences. The corporation is an artificial legal person created by the state. And of course, this is not true of the family. But a corporation does not die when its officers die. It continues to exist legally apart from them, and all its stockholders continue to draw dividends from it. So that as long as a corporation is showing a profit and is not bankrupt, it is alive. It is a legal person that does not die apart from bankruptcy. Now, similarly, in terms of scripture, a family is a corporation. It has dividends to the children in terms of care, support, and inheritance, to the parents in terms of care and respect and honor and provision for their old age if they require it. The corporation officers, therefore, cannot administer the property for purely personal benefit, but in terms of the corporation. We saw the laws of inheritance earlier and how they required that the ungodly be disinherited and those most responsible be blessed. 
Now, in terms of this concept of the family as a corporation in Scripture, we can understand our text. It is the familiar story of Naboth and his vineyard. Naboth's vineyard was close to Ahab's palace and palace ground. A paradoxical situation. Ahab representing the old conservative religious faith of Israel. A zealous believer. Ahab, the modern king, a status to the cross, an unbeliever, outwardly paying lip service to God, but inwardly completely pragmatic. Ahab decided he wanted Naboth's vineyard. He wanted to make certain gardens as an addition to the palace ground. He offered to Naboth a better vineyard or a good sum of money for it. It is clear from Ahab's language that he is ready to be as generous as is necessary because he wanted that property. Naboth's answer was significant. Naboth said, The Lord, or Jehovah, forbiddeth me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. Naboth never even considered for a moment the aspect of personal profit. This was an inheritance from his fathers, each of whom had worked lovingly to improve this land to make it and its house, the land, the walls thereof, as fine and beautiful as possible. And Naboth had worked to improve it. He saw it, therefore, not as purely a personal property, but as a trust from the past to the future through him. And therefore, the aspect of purely personal profit was not in the picture. He was a trustee under God. And therefore, to think of himself at the moment was out of the question. His forefathers before him had built it up as an estate. Every stone in the walls of the vineyard Every stone in the house represented the work of someone before him, a loving addition. It was an inheritance from the past to the future. Therefore, he could not consider it atomistically, purely personally, and hence he refused. In other words, Naboth saw the family as a corporation. And he as the present executive officer of the corporation. And so he looked to the past and the future. 
when he made his decision. We can understand, therefore, why Naboth represented so conservative a tradition in the midst of all the modern debauchery of Ahab's power and kingdom. He had been brought up in this concept of the family as a trustee, a trustee that handed down a faith and a property that had roots in a particular place and in terms of that faith that God had blessed them with. And Ahab destroyed it. When the state enters into the control of children or property and transgresses the sphere of the family and claims to be the true corporation whose life is the care of the family, is sin mightily. And it destroys people with roots to create the rootless, atomistic, modern man. This modern man has no thought but what's in it for me now. We meet this modern man all the time, every day around us. One of the places where I find it most interesting to encounter the mentality of modern man is in Ann Landers' column. I find it very instructive for that reason. She herself reveals a great deal of this modernity. But in the past few days, there was this very interesting column. A letter by a man, dear Ann Landers, why don't you level with the men who write? Tell them they are crazy to get married before they are 35. Then if they have any brains, they should choose a chick who is at least 10 years younger than themselves. If they can get one 15 years younger, better yet. I made the usual crazy mistake. I got married straight out of college at 22 before I knew what life was all about. The bride was 22 also, my childhood sweetheart. Another stupid mistake. We kept our home together until the kids were out of high school, then it cost me 50000 plus the house to unload the old tomatoes. But it was worth it. I passed the petition around the office today. It read, I agree that all women should be shot when they reach 40. Every married man in the office over 30 signed. Doesn't this prove that I have a point? I won't read all of her answer because she was really steaming at that except to say, Dear Henry, yes, you have a point, but maybe if you wear a hat, nobody will notice it. Well, the real point is that this man was right in terms of his humanistic presuppositions because, after all, if you're a humanist and there is no moral law, it's every man for himself and every woman for himself. And I'd like to see the petition the women in the office may have circulated about the same time. I think that would have been better yet. After all, in terms of humanism, the only point to marriage becomes egoistic self-satisfaction. It becomes a lawless union. It produces lawless children and a lawless society 
in which there is no respect for authority or for property. There is no reliance then on God, only on the power of sex. And so, when there is boredom, there is disintegration. The family begins to disappear in such a society. It is replaced by a purely pragmatic arrangement of men and women who happen to have children. The family is important to society. Its faith and nature determine the future. Only when the family again sees itself in terms of its God-given functions can the family again determine the future. The family, again, must be a trustee. A trustee that feels a responsibility handed down by God and by the forefathers to be conveyed as Naboth felt to the future. Naboth saw everything that he had, land, vineyard, his faith, as an inheritance from the past and as a trust for the future. As a good steward, he probably increased the value of everything that he had, but he did not regard it as his own, but as something to administer under God, to the glory of God, and for the future of his family and therefore the country. There are trustee families outside of biblical faith, but they are futile things. For example, the ancient Chinese family system was the trustee family type, but it was passed down because of its ancestor worship. And so it was nothing but the dead hand of the past forever binding society and therefore it had to be broken. But the trustee family of Scripture is future-oriented. It is conveying something from the past to the future, improving on it, developing it, in order that there may be a better future for one's children and grandchildren. The Bible is always future-oriented. The humanist has no future because he has no law. Anne Lander's correspondence as a logical humanist had no concern for tomorrow. What's in it for me now? And any woman over 40 was not a part of his now. He got rid of his wife and was very disgusted that it cost him so much. For him, as a typically modern man, only the existential moment matters. And in an age which is characterized by modernity, the existential moment as everything governs the mind and actions of men. The consequence is the destruction of society. A contempt for the past, 
a disregard for the future and the destruction of everything. But for the believer, past, present, and future are entirely under God. And all things together with all time is a stewardship from God. And therefore, to be dealt with only under him. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy word. And we pray, our Father, that in these difficult days when men live only in terms of the moment, we by thy grace may live in terms of the future, might mold that future and might see its glory manifested even in our lifetime. Bless us to this purpose, we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Yes. The dowry system as you meet it in Europe and in South America and in pagan cultures generally is a part of the ancient European and Asiatic system, a pagan system whereby the bride, in a sense, bought her husband by having a big dowry to offer. And this is contrary to the biblical pattern. But the only dowry virtually that you have today is this kind of uh, dowry whereby the father has to provide a sizable income in order to bribe some man to marry his daughter. And the men go around shopping for the girl with the biggest dowry. And of course, this defeats the whole purpose of the dowry, which, which was that the man demonstrate responsibility before marriage. This fosters irresponsibility. Yes. A fast, yes. A fast was uh, a time of not eating, fasting, abstaining from food for the purpose of some kind of petition to God in time of distress or disaster or for uh, a time of special appeal to God. There was only one fast day that was required of Israel and it was on the Day of Atonement, a fast only during the daylight hours. There was a banquet after God. But the uh, On special occasions, there could be a fast. We are not told what was the fast that was here proclaimed, but no doubt 
something was invented uh, in the way of uh, some problem in the community and they were to gather together to observe a fast and to try to determine what it was that had taken place and what crime had been committed. We aren't given the details. But Naboth was uh, given the blame for whatever it was that the fast was proclaimed. Yes. Yes. Yes, the right of eminent domain. I have a chapter on that in a forthcoming book which will be out next year entitled The Politics of Guilt and Pity. Eminent domain is basically a pagan concept as we have it today. It asserts that the state as a kind of God has the right, the prior right to everything. Now God asserts in scripture the right of eminent domain. Over and over again we are told the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That verse is repeatedly in the law. It is also in the Psalms. It is also in the New Testament. God as creator and king of the universe claims the right to all things, to expropriate what he will. Therefore, Jesus, before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when he proclaimed himself to be the king, the Messiah of prophecy, had his disciples go and expropriate, remember, the coat that he was going to rock and to declare the king hath need of him, the Lord hath need of him. In other words, he was saying, I am the king, God incarnate, therefore I have the right of eminent domain. And of course, when the man heard that, he immediately let them take the coat. Well, the Roman state and other pagan states, because the king or emperor or Caesar was God incarnate, claimed the right of eminent domain. And of course, the European monarchs claiming this same power also made this claim. And this is passed into our law. It did not exist in early American law. The kings of England claimed it in the colonies, and this was one of the reasons leading to the War of Independence. There's a long history about the claim of the kings to certain pine trees for masts on the king's ships. And the king's forester would go through and mark certain pine trees, the best ones, with a king's mark. Nobody was to touch these. Well, for the New Englanders, this was a sign that this was the tree to go out and cut down because they refused to accept this right on the part of the king. And of course, today, the right of eminent domain has been extended. It is no longer as it was until a few years ago, the right to seize property for public necessities for a highway or something. 
earlier, the roads, when they were privately built, toll roads, they had to buy the right-of-way, and if you didn't sell, they had to reroute the road. But in recent years, simply for aesthetic purposes, for beautification, or for any reason whatsoever, the state claims the right of eminent domain. In other words, it is God. The earth is the Lord. Or, in this case, the United States is the federal government. Yes. such a case, if the son, there were an only son and he were ungodly, then it would be some relative who would then be adopted and would take on the family name. I didn't quite hear that. If the son chose to leave, if he went into the city, well and good, and many of them did. Then someone else in the family took over. You see, he would not be the heir then. He could be given something as a minor heir if he were a godly son and told, "All right." You choose to go into the city, fine, we'll give you so much as your inheritance. But the property was maintained intact as far as possible. To this day, for example, in Europe, this is what some Americans find out when they go over there. It's very difficult to uh, buy land. Supposing you decide to go to France and settle down, you may be able to find some land that some aristocrat had who doesn't have any deep roots and prefers to live in Paris, and you can buy his chateau or castle. But supposing you want to buy up the property of the French peasant next to the chateau and have a little more land, he won't sell it to you. And if you offer him a lot of money, he'll say, and what will I do with the money? This land that belonged to my fathers before me. I don't have the right to sell it. To him, it's an inheritance. Now, the significance of this is that when you have this kind of feeling, it gives a background of conservatism, you see, of stability in a country, which it takes untold generations to undo. And this is why, of course, only because France is now dominated by the cities that... Uh, the left is able to govern the country because while there's been a great deal of disintegration morally in the countryside, there still is this strong element of conservatism there. Yes. No, he could go into the city, but then he could not have the best of two worlds, in other words. 
If he chose to go into the city, fine. He would not be the main heir then. He had a duty to carry on something. But if he chose to do something else, he paid the price for it. That was his freedom. Yes. In the city, this did not apply in biblical times because the city is a more shifting, changing thing. So in the city, this type, we'll come to this when we come to property uh, in the Eighth Commandment. But in the city, it was recognized that life is more changing and there isn't the same stability. But still, the concept of trusteeship is a valid one everywhere, although uh, it was the land in the country that was maintained because the country was to be the area of greater stability. Yes. Yes, of course, as we saw earlier, the biblical law has no taxation of property real or otherwise. This is against biblical law. And taxation is ultimately the destruction of property. We've all seen very wonderful areas and cities which uh, are wiped out ultimately by taxation. The taxes go up so that people can no longer afford to maintain those properties. I have seen in some cities magnificent mansions that should remain for a thousand years, go down in two or three generations simply because it was no longer practical for anyone to maintain that in view of taxation. It destroys inheritance, yes. Taxation is the destruction of everything. The purpose of inheritance taxes, as we saw some months earlier, is that the state declares it is the main heir and therefore has first claim on an estate. Before the widow or before any of the children, the state says, I am the main heir. Well, I don't think the courts today would pay much attention to religious beliefs if they were Christian beliefs. But uh, if they were non-Christian, they might. However, I think the significant thing here is that there has been a rising opinion in several states that the property tax should be abolished. We did have a measure on the ballot here in the last election, which unfortunately was defeated with a tremendous volume of propaganda. But, of course, one reason why they are afraid of these things and fight them is that it will knock their welfare uh, system out of circulation as well as your modern uh, public school movement. Those will be the main victims 
if the property tax ceases to exist. Yeah. It was a fixed tax for everyone, and of course, this is what the biblical law also requires. A head tax, the same for everyone, therefore it could not be too high so that the poor could not pay, nor could it be varied from person to person. And of course, this limited the power of the state. The state could not grow if all it had was this fixed amount. Yes. Right. And of course, there's no provision for an income tax either in the Constitution as it was originally written. It was to be duties on imports and that sort of thing. So they visualized a very, very limited amount of taxation. They were afraid of taxes. Their reaction to what we have today would certainly be one of ultimate horror. say there's no head tax permitted in the Constitution, this is only for the federal government. The states and the counties could assess it, you see. This was to keep the federal government from having any contact with the individual. It was only a union of the states. It was to have no power over the individuals. Well, our time is more than up, so we are adjourned. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.